Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and today we will be discussing COVID liability shield laws. 30 states at the present time have already enacted such laws, and my guests today have been conducting research on what these laws do and what has led to their passage. So I'm joined today by two guests. Nicholas Creel is an assistant professor of business law at Georgia College and State University. His primary research is about religion and politics, constitutional law, and international law. Jahan El Jarbagi teaches business law and ethics at Georgia College, where she was recently awarded the Laurie Hendrickson McMillan Award for Outstanding Teaching and Service. A law graduate of the University of Georgia, she worked as a workers' compensation attorney in Oregon and a general practitioner and partner in a middle Georgia law firm prior to joining the faculty at Georgia College. In addition to her teaching and research, she leads study abroad trips focused on corporate leadership and sustainability. She currently serves as the president of the Southeastern Academy of Legal Studies in Business and coordinates Georgia College's Constitution Week events. So thank you both for joining me, and I'm so excited to talk about this. Now, from what I've gathered, you have both been looking at a longer history of pandemic legislation or laws in response to pandemics. So, Jahan, I want to start with you. What are some other examples that you can give our listeners that are similar to what you're currently studying? Sure, and thanks again for having us. So much has been made um, recently about uh, George Washington's um, requirement for smallpox um, variolation, which was uh, really a precursor to vaccination of his troops during the Revolutionary War. Uh, this is being brought up, I think, in response to the vaccines hesitant to show that, look, a forefather, someone who's this icon in American history, is someone who promoted uh, trying preventative measures to address uh, a health scourge. So at that time, smallpox. And um, so even before that, then there were outbreaks of smallpox and yellow fever in colonial times. And uh, our you know, nascent government instituted mandatory home isolations. Um, you know, fast forwarding to diseases like the Spanish flu in the early 20th century. And then you also have closures. You know, we had a shutdown in March in many states, imposed by states, and uh, there were several closures and suspensions of public gatherings in the United States in the early 1900s. And then vaccines have also been required. Uh, Massachusetts was the first state to require uh, a vaccine or have a vaccine mandate in the 1800s, um, but pretty much was widespread throughout the United States by state law, particularly regarding um, schools and also for troops in um, starting really around the 1920s and 1930s. Since a lot of people may be tuning into this and they're hearing the word shield laws. Actually, I said this to someone earlier today. I said, yeah, I'm going to be talking to two people about shield laws. And they were like, oh, like Captain America? I said, no, 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 no. That, that is not, that is not what I mean by shield laws. Could you give everyone kind of a good definition? Like what is a shield law when we hear that phrase? Is that, is it, is it really about, I guess, consumers or is it about like people who work at businesses? Like, what is that? Yeah. So a shield, you can still think of that as a way to protect someone. Um, in the case of a corporate shield law, it is protecting the corporate entity or their business organization from lawsuit, from 
uh, particularly lawsuits involving negligent transmission of uh, disease. So that's that's what it is. I mean, it, it's still, you know, you could still use that idea of, you know, protecting yourself from something. But uh, in this case, it's government imposed protection of companies. Now, you said negligent. Like, is that difficult to prove? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> general, okay, well, you know, when people think of negligence, that's typically like medical malpractice, car accidents. Those are the kind of cases that involve negligence when an accident occurs or someone doesn't exercise reasonable care. And so the idea is that um, in, in business or in any kind of negligence case, you're having to, uh, there's four elements to that particular claim. One is that you have to demonstrate there's some sort of duty um, for instance, a duty to a customer to keep them safe. Um, and that the second element would be breach of that duty. So you've done something to not keep them safe. The third would be causation. And um, causation, there's two different types, but trying to stay away from the really nitty gritty of the law. Basically, you have to show a direct cause between the, the company and the harm caused to the customer. For instance, if we're looking at kind of corporate negligence. And then finally, you have to have damages and damages are required as part of negligence. So did the person actually suffer harm from the company's actions? And so you have to go through all four of those steps in order to have a successful negligence claim. And if you're trying to claim negligence, negligent transmission of disease, it's really difficult to show that the company or some entity within the company was the direct cause of, say, an employee or a customer from acquiring that illness. Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, COVID, since we're talking about COVID-19, right, that a, an employee might become ill with COVID-19, how would an employee prove that they became ill because of where they worked or, or who they were around? Is Does contact tracing go into some of these claims? In order to prove a negligence claim, you're going to have to, in a lot of ways, disprove the negative in this case. You know, it's like you're going to have to show like, let's say even theoretically, I wear masks everywhere I go. I know that everyone I encounter is vaccinated. My workplace is the only place that requires me not to wear a mask or they don't allow customers to wear a mask. And that is the only conceivable place. But that's that's an extreme circumstance that's not likely to happen. Um, that's the only maybe fairly clean way you could potentially prove it. And this law is sort of preventing that really unusual, almost impossible case from occurring. Yeah, because I'm thinking that you could even pick it up. I mean, if you go to eat, if you go to a restroom, if you go to get gas, if you go into a grocery store, right, that there are all these additional variables. So I, I'm assuming that businesses, well, number one, it's probably just really hard to prove. And so businesses rarely have to pay out for these sorts of, whether it's COVID or not, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, and this is all like an exercise of hypothetical because the actual instances, and, and this is, we're still having to look into it. We're, we're trying to find examples of these, but you know, what if you have an employee who has the measles and a family comes in and someone's not vaccinated and that employee is where you get, you know, and maybe visibly you could tell they had the measles, um, you know, that might be a situation where you could demonstrate that causation. But I think for um, diseases that are less visible, um, like COVID, where you cannot physically tell whether or not someone has it, being able to prove that a particular person was the one who transmitted it in the workplace would be, I, I think, virtually impossible, yeah. just as a law is without these shields. 
Yeah. And that's, yeah. And, and consider too, the, the specific nature of COVID, like all the asymptomatic transmission that we've known now for well over a year is a big part of the story here that people who have it very often don't know they have it in the, in the long incubation period, particularly with the alpha variant, which could go up upwards of 14 days. So, I mean, to be able to really account for every place and every interaction for that long, and even to get over a, a relatively minor, like more likely than not, I caught it from A or B hurdle. That's still really incredibly difficult to, to do to the point where just looking at it, it, it just kind of makes you wonder, like, why? Why would you bother crafting this law? Right. And and so, Nicholas, I want you to talk a little bit. I, I've heard the story before from you, and I want to share it with everyone else. So this project uh, that you and Johanna are working on right now, where you're looking at these laws. How did this come about? That's actually, Jahan is the one who started the research and uh, it's actually ties to your kid because you used a specific disease earlier. So I'll let her tell that story of how the, the, the genesis of the, the project. Sure. Okay. So in my class, negligence is one of my favorite days when we, so I teach legal environment of business and I love going over these four elements. And uh, especially when I had a child who was under the age of two and they were not yet eligible for that MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella, and the, um, during that time, there was an outbreak in New York. Um, and I was just thinking, again, you go through these hypotheticals. What if my child was exposed to someone, my baby was exposed to someone who chose not to get vaccinated and my child contracted and not only contracted, but died. And often in my class, my kids always die from some horrid hypothetical that I come up with, you know, just trying to paint these stories. Um, and I told them like, let's go through these elements you know, do people generally have a duty of care to each other? Okay, we can all agree, yes, we have a general duty of care not to infect each other, okay? Um, yeah, and did so, does someone breach that duty of care by going out of the house knowingly with infectious measles? All right, arguably, I would say yes. And if there's very few cases, and you know that this one population has opted to, to not get vaccinated and to just, you know, sweat it out, literally, um, if, if they're the only people that I'm exposed to, and then could I potentially, and my child dies, do I have action for negligence and I, could I pursue this? And the students were like, uh, you know, not, and I'm thinking just as a mother, I sure as hell hope I can. Mm -hmm. I sure hope that's an option. Uh, and so as I started with COVID, I live in a small town in rural America uh, where COVID has in some ways seem like a, uh, a big city plot, okay? Um, from, it seems like a lot of the people in this community. And so as I go into the little shops around here that I love, and I know, you know these are the people that I grew up with and that I know who at the same time have done nothing consistent with what has been suggested by health authorities in the medical community. And I've wondered if this is the only place that I go and this is the place where I contracted, even though I'm wearing an N95 because I'm just not, you know, um, do I have a cause of action? And that's what, that's the question that first kind of sparked it. So then I knew that Georgia was passing this law and I thought, well, okay, so now, you know, they're protecting business even more um, from potential actions, uh, except for gross negligence. It doesn't cover generally gross negligence. So if they are, you know, they have knowledge of this risk and they continue to, to push it, um, then a customer 
maybe may still have a small course of action. So anyway, that's what started. It was sort of a mother's concern for, um, you know, whether or not I could pursue something if I felt like people weren't exercising the care that they should have. And then I just kind of started to get mad and I learned about all these different laws and started looking at it. And I thought, well, why is it even necessary? You know, with my background in law and knowing about how hard it is to prove intentional or negligent transmission of disease, like why would you need to, to even like give these businesses more fodder to be, I don't know, almost sloppy or, or not, not being careful with their customers and people who avail themselves of their services. So that's what started it all. Yeah. It makes me think about like, even here where I live, I've heard parents talk about how, you know, first of all, there was this, will, will children have to wear masks at school? And then will staff have to wear masks at school? So even in those situations, like if a child were to be exposed, but let's say the teacher wasn't wearing a mask or an administrator wasn't wearing a mask, like at what point would a school be held liable for those sorts of things? So there, this is multifaceted. And I understand that when you were talking about this, uh, Nicholas, you thought immediately that politics had a lot to do with what was happening in these states. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, when Jan, you know, she gets interested in the idea and she kind of knows she wants to do something with it. And she was kind of she brought it to, I guess, what would you call it? A sort of research developmental presentation that we have in the College of Business where faculty can take something and, and in a safe environment, present something, you know, that's not ready. Uh, even at, even ready for a, a conference, you know, it's real rough to kind of, you know, get ideas on where to go with it. And so as she lays out the case that she's already laid out up until now talking about negligence and myself also, you know, having gone through the, the law school track myself, completely getting it and understanding it. And then she's kind of like, so it's, we're left here kind of wondering why did these laws exist? Like, I mean, they don't, they, there seems to be no real reason for them. And that's when I immediately kept just thinking in my head, because I've also got that political science background. I was like, it's it's clearly about politics, even if in which is I would suspect the case is the case. Most uh, politicians at state houses who are themselves lawyers know when they went ahead and passed these shield laws, these protections, they already knew how hard a negligence case was going to be to win. They, they, They knew full well that passing this law, taking up precious legislative time to go ahead and push it through was likely to result in absolutely nothing. And so in trying to figure out why that would be done, it immediately came to mind of the idea of like Mayhew, uh, this old, you know, let's try to understand how Congress does what it does, his seminal work called Congress. And one of his you know, cornerstones of it is saying, we assume legislators before anything else want to get reelected. And one of the ways they can do that is through credit claiming. And so, you know, even if what you're claiming credit for doesn't really matter <laughs> if it's if it's completely pointless, but if it's something you can point to and say, I did that, I went ahead and made that happen, that's that's worth something politically, even if it's not worth anything legally. And so I kind of just had my initial suspicions. I was like, you know, I, I really think that we could probably explain this almost entirely with politics. And so from there, we decided, let's go hunt for data. Okay, so let me pause for just a moment. This is a fabulous conversation. I know there's probably some people now just tuning in. Uh, So hi, everyone. Welcome to Red, White, Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and I'm joined today 
by two guests, um, Nicholas Creel, who is an assistant professor of business law at Georgia College and State University, and Jahan L. Jabagi, who also teaches business law and ethics at Georgia College. So we've been discussing shield laws and how there are many states right now, 30 so states that have these business shield laws and trying to figure out why they have them in the first place. So Nicholas, turning back to you, you just mentioned that you wanted to go get some data. So what type of data have you collected? Yeah, so right off the bat, in order to test it, knowing we're thinking it's politics, the first thing we look then is at what's the political party in control within each state. So breaking it down to each house, you know, which party controls each house, which party controls the government. And then we kind of thought, what else could be driving this? And one of the most obvious ones could be COVID case counts. And that's also another one that we have, you know, not, not great data, but we have at least consistently bad data, uh, considering how underreported it was, especially early on. So we go and we kind of say, well, if the state's got a lot of COVID, it might make more sense that they would be driven through non-political reasons. Uh, to go ahead and pass these shield laws. So what we do is we throw just those, you know, COVID case counts from multiple points in time leading up to the end of the year. We looked at the, you know, the party control of the legislature and the party control of the governor. We throw it on to a statistical model called the logit regression, logistic regression, which essentially just means either the, the variable that we're interested in studying, did the shield law get passed, is either a one or a zero, one if it did, zero if it didn't. And so what we do is when we plug in these variables, it went ahead and told us very clearly only one thing mattered, the legislature. COVID case counts didn't matter. The party of the governor didn't matter. But if the Republican Party controlled the legislature, they were substantially more likely to have passed that law. So I want to talk about that. So this is if the legislature is controlled by Republicans. So you have some cases in there that are Republican controlled legislatures versus perhaps Democratic governors? Because I do know there are some Democratic governors that have signed shield laws, correct? So are there are there a couple of those? Yeah, we do see plenty of mixed government. N- none of the mixed government uh, variables really seem to matter. The de- being a Democratic governor didn't make a state less likely to so- sign a shield law. So essentially, if the legislature was going to push it through, the governor, even if it was a Democrat, was going to be happy to sign it into law. And again, we seem to look at the political science expectations of this, and it fits. Because well, one thing we tend to know is governors aren't as ideological as the people in the legislature. And the big reason for that is in the legislature, you get to draw your district. So you get to be a little bit more extreme, either to the left or to the right. But for a governor, you got to run everywhere. You're trying to get people in the city and in the country to vote for you. And you can't just be clobbered in one or the other. You have to do at least fairly well in both to be really competitive. And so really, the the impetus would never be in the governor. You know, his party wouldn't really matter. At the same time, he's not going to be the one who stops it because that's that's a stronger statement. Yeah, because I'm thinking that governors, I mean, this is this is more like a safe issue for governors, right? Like, well, I'm protecting business. You know, that that seems very nonpartisan. I'm just protecting business. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. We're just doing this for the betterment of, of business. Although I mean, perhaps it's more Republican than Democratic, but still, it, it feels like something that if you had a governor say no to, that yeah, would be, exactly. you know, shocking. Yeah, you, you don't want to be anti-business. And so in the, right. way, in the way it was often posed is a lot of Republicans were trying to push it for this. We're very the, the pro-business party. And this often, too, and this this connects back to, you know, we think back now to the uh, early days of the pandemic about at this point, what, 18, 19 months ago, when we're shutting the economy down, 
we immediately saw, and this is now carried through every step of the way, every aspect of COVID policy has been politicized to where whether it's masks, whether it was the initial shutdown, whether now it's vaccines, every aspect has been extraordinarily politicized to where one party just has to take a position on it and the other one almost instinctively goes the opposite direction, uh, regardless of what your prior expectations on it might be. Now, Jahan, did you also collect some data on businesses themselves? Like, did did businesses want this? Okay, so I went on a cross-country road trip this summer. And so the first part of this uh, in terms of collecting data was face-to-face interviews with small business owners. And I, in each state that I went to, I would just randomly like say, hey, do you have 10 minutes to talk to me about you know, laws that have been passed after COVID that impact business? And put on the recorder and we'd start talking and um across the board everyone every you know grocery store owner restaurant owner i'm trying to think of different music store owner just different small businesses not one of them said i was concerned about customers suing me about covid not one and uh it was really interested their concerns were very local um, you know, one that's on the Canadian border, we're worried about the Canada border being shut down and tourists being able to come down. You know, someone who is in a restaurant, we're worried about being able to hire enough workers. Are you concerned about, you know, the question, are you concerned about customers suing? No, that is not something that we were worried about. So it was just so interesting to me that uh, it did not seem to be something that any, at least the people that I spoke with were concerned about. And we're casting a wider net now. We are reaching out through a survey um, instrument to more people, uh, businesses in each state uh, so we can get more data. Yeah, I know a few small business owners and they were just concerned with staying open, right? Like they just want to make sure that they can survive the pandemic, not that people would sue them. So, all right, partisanship matters, but gosh darn it. Like when we think about that, why did they take all this time to do this? I mean, it was just showboating. I mean, what what they could be doing other things with their time, right? I mean, technically, they, they are legislatures and, and they could be doing additional things. So I think that's like in the heat of it, when, when people were still, when there was still sort of an aura of mystery about this thing, like I feel like now there's been enough time that people can get their heads around it and grapple with their response to it. But when it was still um, an unknown and people were still scared, these laws were coming out and I, and I couldn't help but think, isn't there something that's more substantive and that could address the fears that people have when, you know, I just didn't view this as time well spent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, legislative time is a rare commodity. And so a state I'm familiar with Texas is a great case study in illustrating just how rare it is and how bizarre it can be from a legal perspective to spend time on a bill like this, a COVID liability shield, because in Texas, right, they only meet every other year. It's for a very short window. It's a non-professional legislature, so it pays peanuts to be there. And so when you run out of your calendar, the governor has to call legislative sessions one at a time for very specific, narrow purposes. And it's just incredibly inefficient. And and none of the legislator really wants to do that. Nobody in there wants to be in a special session. And so it's all the more curious when you look at Texas, And you see that they were really hardcore in the Republican Party in Texas trying to push these specific voting bills. And they ended up having to call a special session because they ran out of time. They weren't able to push it through. 
Uh, and it's something they probably wouldn't have had to do if they had freed up legislative calendars early on by not spending times on things like COVID liability shields. Uh, so, so it really is just, it, it shows perfectly. It is just that, as we call it, showboat shields. It was something they really wanted to brandish because at the moment, it felt like this is a very political issue that's going to score me points with my base. Even if the average Joe looks at it, right, they're just going to be like, oh, it looks pro-businessy. And so they're going to be okay with it. And, and, and you know, their hardcore supporters are going to say, oh, look, you're standing up for business while the other side's trying to shut it down. I mean, it, it, from a political perspective, it's a, it's a huge win from the, the politician standpoint. Even though from the lawyer standpoint, they just kind of look at it with a little cock eye thinking, why would you like, why, why do this? So have we, I'm thinking about the future now, right? Because right now in Virginia, we have an election going on. We seem to have elections going on all the time here, uh, which is nice because people get engaged in elections constantly. Are, is anybody campaigning on this? Like, has, have there been any candidates that are running ads? Like, look at me, I, I enacted a shield law. So please vote for me. I mean, that would be really interesting if we had some candidates who were saying those sorts of things. So what, what's next for you two? I mean, you, uh, Jahan, you mentioned doing this larger survey. Is, where are you sending the larger survey? Uh, we're just uh, aiming at small businesses, uh, at least 10 per state. And so we are just seeking to uh, get more information from more small businesses. So I'm, I'm on this research on the side of the history of the laws, the, the reasons why this wouldn't be uh, important, one being not important, necessary, one being the difficulty of causation with negligence. And second, that we haven't talked about this is the concept of assumption of risk, especially now where everybody knows that COVID can be anywhere, uh, essentially, that we all know that if you are concerned and you need to protect yourself. So by going voluntarily to the grocery store, by voluntarily going to go out, out to eat, you assume the risk of exposing yourself to potential c- contracting this disease. Um, so, you know, with it not being necessary, I, I'm now more looking at um, what our business is concerned about, what kind of laws would they be more interested in, and does this in any way erode the concept of negligent transmission of disease generally? Mm, and I just saw Nicholas writing down what you said, because I think he thinks it's a good idea for us to look. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a candidate issue. And, and that ties into, you know, it, it fits within our findings in that in 2020, we only saw one state house go from blue to red. And that was Rhode Island. Rhode Island, or New Hampshire, excuse me, New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is now in the process of passing a corporate coronavirus-specific shield law. And, and so it would be really interesting to look to see, are they trying to play up the need for it? Even if they aren't, aren't to the uh, level of bragging about, look what I already did, perhaps look what I'm going to do uh, could be something as well that we, we'd see them, uh, see them doing in this specific instance. Yeah, I, I think that it would be really fascinating if they were running on this because it would be credit claiming, like what you mentioned before with, with all the traditional political science research. It's like, here's what I'm doing. Now I'm going to also run on this because I'm the pro-business candidate. Uh, so thank you both for being on the show today and thank all of you for listening. Um, this again has been Red, White, and Confused. Thanks to everyone. And this program, if you did miss any piece of this, is available by podcast through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and see you next time.